Oh dear. Hey guys, and welcome to the Coffee and Coding Podcast, the show where we discuss everything there is to know about app development. I'm your host, Rob J, and in this episode, I chat with cybersecurity expert and number one best-selling author, Ted Harrington. We talk about hacking medical devices, how secure is your smartphone, how to think like a hacker, the blockchain bandit, and much, much more. Now on to the show. So before we get into today's show, not too much housekeeping from me pretty much the usual actually so if you haven't yet left a rating and review and you like the show then please please do so it would really help me out and it would really help other people to find the show as well if you would like to be part of the coffee encoding slack community then you can do so by joining at coffeeencodingpod.com forward slash slack and finally if you'd like to support the show with a coffee donation then you are more than welcome to do so and you can do so by going to coffeeencodingpod.com slash donate And with that being said, let's get into today's episode with Ted Harrington. So you got brought to my attention by, I assume it's a podcast agent. Like I've only been doing this for a little while, so I've never had emails from agents saying, hey, I want to book this guest. (laughs) Normally I have to go to people and say, hey, do you want to be on the show? They brought you to my attention and I haven't, I haven't read the book, but I've, I've read about you. So I have a bunch of questions that I would like to ask about you and then we'll dig into the book and cybersecurity and we'll see where we go from there. Yeah, that sounds great. Awesome. So just just to kick it off, can you tell us a little bit about you? Specifically, something that I'm always interested in, right, is how did you become a, I assume the right term would be a professional hacker. It seems that to become a hacker, you have to do something illegal and then you suddenly end up on the right side of things and now you're an ethical hacker. So how did you go about becoming a hacker? And just give us a little bit about your background. Yeah, that's actually a pretty common misconception. Um, some people do actually follow the exact path that you just said, right? They do something bad. They like serve time or maybe they don't serve time, but they negotiate some deal and then they sort of like turn over to the good side. A great example of that is like uh, is a guy named Frank Abagnale, who is the the subject of Catch Me If You Can. Perfect example, someone who did bad, and now he's a he's a good guy. He also had an incredibly interesting journey. Like to live that guy's life would have been amazing. Absolutely, until he, until he got caught, cool, but still. Yeah, I mean, yeah, his his journey was definitely definitely cool. And I mean, I think that a lot of people in ethical hacking, their journeys are cool too. You just don't necessarily know about them because Leonardo DiCaprio is not playing you in a movie. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. At least not yet. So some people do become ethical hackers through the path that you just mentioned, but actually most don't. Uh, the vast majority don't. But what I think we should do is first define even the, the term sure. itself, right? Go so what is a hacker? And if you are to believe the headlines, a hacker would be an evil person, you know, someone who's always attacking things in order to you know, steal money or whatever. And, and those are hackers, but that's, that's a type of hacker, right? So really what a hacker is, is a hacker is a, a creative problem solver, someone who looks at the way that something works and says, you know, can I build it differently? Can I make it behave differently? Can I produce unintended outcomes or consequences? And that's where the fork in the road starts is after that point. And the fork in the road comes to motivation, which says, well, malicious people, attackers, they're trying to understand how a system can work the way it's not supposed to in order to essentially achieve some sort of adverse outcome that benefits them or whatever. But the other fork of the road is someone who wants to understand how a system is not supposed to work in order to do good and in order to fix it. And that's what people from my field do. So that's what ethical hackers do. So really the the mindsets begin in the same place, right? How can we see a system and make it behave differently? And many of the tools and techniques and approaches are also the same, but the motivation is the key, key difference. So that's a really like a really long way of setting context to answer your question, which is, okay, so how does someone become an ethical hacker? Well, someone ultimately decides, hey, I like looking at the way something is supposed to work and I like to figure out, can it behave differently? I like solving hard problems. I like being able to do the thing that people say can't be done. And then they say, okay, well, how can I do that as a profession? How can I do it to help other people? How can I be part of a community? How can I not go to jail? Yeah. <laughs> how yeah. can I get paid? And ultimately, that's how people uh, become ethical hackers. So to dig into something that I read on your rep. I read on your website that you are an executive partner at, I think it's ISE, Independent Security Evaluators. Mm-hmm. And it said that you did some stuff with 
cars and i read on there that i think you hacked the original iphone so something that i was interested in i want to dig into the iphone stuff in a little bit because it's a mobile app development focused podcast so i definitely have questions about stuff like that but just off the bat what is some of the the cooler or slash scary hacks that you have done as an ethical hacker that you're allowed to talk about i should should caveat with that (laughs) well i'd say one of the scariest hacks was a research that we did around uh, medical devices And what we were looking at was this question of could an attacker cause harm or fatality to a patient? That was really the, the, that hypothesis stemmed from a brainstorming exercise where we basically said, well, what's the worst thing that could happen as a result of a security breach? And the worst thing is like someone could get hurt or, or potentially die. And so we said, all right, well, let's explore that. And that quickly led us to, well, we should investigate either something like connected transportation, like autonomous driving or something like that, or healthcare. And so we started digging into healthcare. And what we noticed as we were sort of planning the research study was that pretty much everybody in healthcare, when they talk about security, at least in the United States, and I think the the ramifications of this actually echo worldwide. But in the United States, when people talk about security in healthcare, they're really talking about privacy. They're really talking about the privacy of the medical record. And that's largely because of some of the regulations and that exist in America. But that drives where people invest their money. Uh, essentially, what they're saying is, well, I have to allocate money to make sure that I comply with this regulation, which is called HIPAA. But I guess that's our security program, too. And so we're looking at that. We're like, that. well, hold on a second. Could someone still get hurt because of this? And so one of the things that we looked at in the context of this study was we found all these different ways that, yeah, you could actually cause harm to a patient without ever violating compliance with HIPAA. So you touch systems that either are out of scope of it or they're still in compliance with the way that they get you know, compromised. And one example of that was we looked at the bedside monitors, the patient monitors that you see in the hospital room that report your O2 levels and um, blood level or heart rate, uh, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. Heart rate. Yeah. I was like blood moving, <laughs> blood, heart rate. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so it reports all those things. And what we found was that an attacker could access the system remotely could bypass authentication, which meant that they could just access the system. They didn't need to actually log in in any way. And then they could perform what's called remote code execution, which means they could make the system behave to whatever whatever commands or whatever, that however they wanted the system to behave. And so what we found was, and, and I think this is a really interesting attack scenario because it begets the question, right? Okay, you can make the patient monitor say whatever you want. But how does that hurt a patient? It's not doing anything to the patient. It's not like a drug infusion pump. It's not like you could make it inject 10 or 100 times the dosage and hurt somebody. But what it could do is it could disrupt the delivery of care. And so we found how you could you could run this sequence of events and make the nurses and the physicians respond to a patient who doesn't need care. Yeah. So best case scenario when that happens is... The patient is fine. You know, they rush in the room. The patient's like, I don't know why that thing's buzzing off. Like, I'm, I'm cool. And they're like, all right, everything's good. That's the best case scenario. And in the best case scenario, care has now been diverted from the people who need it. So that patient isn't hurt, but other patients who are like struggling in some way and need the nurse or the physician, it's just totally a chaotic mess. But in the worst case in that scenario, you know, let's say the nurse or the physician run in and they all the fail safes that exist in order to make sure that, hey, let's just make sure this patient's OK. It's not like the, the device is getting buggy. It's a chaotic environment. It's possible that those fail safes get overlooked. You could actually hurt a patient. But the real worst case scenario is the opposite. Instead yeah, of triggering a false alarm, like I just said, like, hey, this totally fine patient is having some sort of heart incident. You do the opposite and you disable legitimate alarms and you take a patient who does need that care and now the alarm doesn't go off so the nurse doesn't come running in the physician doesn't come running in and that patient who needs care and doesn't get it is really going to suffer and those are really really scary things obviously and one of the things that is i think problematic about the security field is that a lot of times these hypotheticals are used to sort of describe, hey, the sky is falling. There's so much doom and gloom. This is all scary. And what this showed is that, hey, we're not trying to sit here and say, hypothetically, like this crazy thing could happen. We're saying, this is exactly how it would happen. And this is how easy it would be. And and the worst part is no one is thinking about it in this way. And that's really the problem is that we need to think differently about how we think about securing our systems because attackers think differently. 
So that's definitely one of the scariest ones. There's there's tons of cool stories that I'll I'll share throughout uh, our day today. But you asked the scariest, and I think the idea of someone suffering in a hospital is definitely the scariest. Yeah, for sure. All right, so we'll jump back to a, to a cooler one later. And, and I also want to ask about the getting into the Mac into the hackers mindset. But before we do that, just on that scenario you just mentioned, right? So if if somebody's on like um I don't know what the name of it is, but the machine that you just mentioned, I assume those machines they're not running you know, Windows or OS X or anything like that. So how do, how do you approach that in terms of like, are they running a system that you could already be familiar with? Or is it literally just picking at things that you find and seeing what it does? Because how do you know, like if it's a Windows system, for example, or a Linux system, you could get into a terminal, you could probably figure out like, right, if I do this, it says the heart rate's 50. But in a system like that, where it's like, you've never seen it before, how, how do you go about figuring out like, right, if I do this thing, it says the heart rate's 50. If I do this thing, an alarm goes off. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, think about what security researchers are fundamentally, right? Scientists, you know, it's a, it's a scientific method of evaluating the way something works and testing inputs and outputs. And you, you test against a hypothesis and you explore things and there's all kinds of dead ends. I mean, you run into dead ends and red herrings all day long. Like, oh, okay, well, that wasn't going to be a particular issue or whatever. But I think the metaphor to answer that is, is one that we, we can really simplify it because here's the way to think about this. Imagine that a security researcher is is analogous to someone who's like an expert on braking systems, like uh, braking systems in cars. Uh, automotive brakes is what I'm I'm saying, not braking like destroy whatever the I don't know the technical term is for a brake, but like the thing that makes Ele- a vehicle electronically doing something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know a better term either, but sure, go for it. So you're so I'm an expert. Let's let's say I'm an expert in the braking systems that are used by German automobiles and in particular Audi is my specialty. Like let's just say that's my specialty. And then you come to me and you say, "Hey, I'm with Toyota and we've got this brand new vehicle come that's coming out and it's got this brand new braking system. Can you evaluate the brakes on it?" I've never seen the braking system on a Toyota before. Am I going to be able to figure out pretty quickly how the braking system works? Probably. Yeah. yeah. Because I have this sort of mental model of all the different ways that systems could potentially work together. So if we want to extend that even further, now let's say, okay, let's say you work for Tesla and the braking system on a Tesla is very different from the braking system on a gas powered vehicle. Would I be able to figure out the braking there because it's so different? Absolutely. Like very quickly, I would say, oh, interesting. The the braking system's a little different than what I expect, but I'm still looking for the fundamental principles of like when X happens, does it produce Y? I gotcha. I suppose it's kind of like debugging code, right? Like you could be debugging code you've never seen before, but if you look for the right entry and exit points that you know exist, you could probably figure out how it works. Yeah. 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 I think, I think that's a great way to think about it. I mean, I don't think there is a single project that we've ever done, whether it's research where we're doing it, you know, on our, at our own risk or as consulting where a company hires us to do it. I don't think there's a single project we've done where there isn't some element that's new to us. There's always something new. And that's what I think actually really makes this field, you know, it's one of the things that makes this field so interesting and stimulating is like you're learning and trying new things every time. But that's a really abstracted way to answer your question. You know, we'd never looked at a passive medical device like a patient monitor before. And so it was a process of like, okay, how does it work? <laughs> like, what are the inputs and outputs? And eventually you work backwards to being able to figure those things out. Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense to me. The the brake analogy is is pretty good because I can imagine like a Tesla is super different, but at the end of the day, some, at some point in time, the brake hits the wheel, which could be totally wrong because I don't really know how brakes in cars work. But however brakes in cars work, they work the same across the board. They just control differently, right? So that totally that totally makes sense to me. So I want to I want to jump onto something else and and you've mentioned it already which is thinking like a hacker, right? So I'm a developer, I build Android apps and at least for the apps that I build the the amount of damage that could be caused by somebody doing something to the app to break something is is like it's minimal, right? You could probably break something so you get more coins in a game or you could break something so you get you know, um, exclusive access is something that was supposed to be behind a feature flag or whatever it may be. But in terms of thinking like a hacker, how do you suggest people go about doing that having never, you know, intentionally try to break anything themselves or, or even knowing what the things are that could break to know 
the ways that they could be broken? Well, I'll start by answering that question by challenging the assumption that was woven into even the way the question was framed, right? You you mentioned that, oh, well, someone might be able to get some more coins and that's not that big of a thing. Well, is it? I, I don't know. Because for a particular company, maybe that is a big deal. If that's their whole revenue model and it's very easy for someone to circumvent that and then acquire those coins and then sell them in a secondary market yeah. for real money. Fair play, yeah. That's probably a yeah, pretty yeah. pretty big deal. Um, but the way to think about what it means to think like a hacker is this. And um, when I was in the process of writing my book, I I got to do a lot of interviews. I interviewed both the sort of technology leaders like CTOs and VPs of engineering, I interviewed all kinds of security professionals. And uh, one day I took one of our security analysts who who works for our company out to lunch. And obviously I know what the guy does. I mean, he works for our company. Like I, I very much know what he does, but I wanted to make sure my own assumptions weren't baked into anything. So I asked him, so, you know, we're sitting there at like a ramen place and, and I just said, so tell me what you do. And, and he sort of thought about it for a second. He puts his, you know, noodle or his uh, chopsticks back down his noodle, sort of like steaming in his face a little bit. And he says, well, my job is to think the bad thoughts and ask the hard questions. And I thought that was a really interesting way to organize it. So of course, you know, I'm, I'm riveted now. I'm like, okay, well, what do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. He said, well, what I mean by uh, think of bad thoughts is look at a system from a malicious viewpoint, right? And say, well, could this system be attacked in order to achieve something really ugly? And so, you know, we talked about the coins before. That's 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 a pretty straightforward example. Like, could someone steal the coins? Could they undermine the revenue model? But maybe there's a different aspect to it that we haven't necessarily thought about yet, which is like, okay, well, what if you make the game unusable? Where now everyone says, and even for a short period of time with mobile games, people might be like, all right, I'm just done playing that game. Like, it could be offline for a day and it might lose 90% of the users. And so there's an attack scenario to think about there. Like, could we make an exodus, could we create an exodus of users? And would that be a problem? Could we deface the app? You know, it's aimed at kids and all of a sudden there's like, you know, some porn scene is spliced into it somewhere. And so those are the things where not everyone is wired to think that way by having, you know, think those bad thoughts. And I actually don't think everyone should necessarily think that way because it's, (laughs) once you unplug from the matrix, you see the world, you you see the darkness and you're like, oh man, I don't want to be back in the matrix now. (laughs) But the people who are unplugged from the matrix, myself and people, you know, who, who work in this field, we just, we enjoy it. You know, we see that as a different type of problem solving. So that's the first thing is uh, thinking those bad thoughts, looking at a system and giving yourself the permission to say, okay, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? How could I abuse this? Uh, who might be interested in abusing? It's not always about making money. You know, uh, what are the motiva- different motivations that attackers have from notoriety to uh, instilling fear to uh, corporate espionage? There's just like, there's tons of motivations. So that's the first part is uh, think the bad thoughts. And the second part, ask the hard questions. That's where what uh, an ethical hacker does is look at the assumptions that are woven into the things that any developer has done. And to, I guess, put that into context, you know, just because of my profession, I wind up being in rooms all the time, hearing what people's assumptions are even without me explicitly asking for it. Like, it, it's not very effective to be like, so tell me about your assumptions. Like, yeah, no one okay, knows how to answer okay, a question yeah. like that. <laughs> but when you're, when you're asking questions, the assumptions start coming out. And this scenario, which is going to sound like I'm making it up, is not made up, is very true, happens all the time, where we'll point out some sort of scenario, right, based on what their tech is. And we'll say something, some version of, well, what if an attacker did X, whatever X is, so, you know, some sequence of events. What if an attacker did X? And... I'm not joking you. This happens all the time. People will say in response to that question, oh, no one will think to do X. I've heard that before in meetings too. I concur. 100%. Yeah. I'm like, we literally just, said it. just <laughs> did. <laughs> and if we did, other other people will. And so, and that that's the important, that's an important part is looking at the assumptions and that's just one type of assumption. But, you know, there, there's derivatives of that all day long you know like oh a user would only do it this way a user wouldn't want to do it that way there aren't this type of user it would be annoying for a user to do you know there are just like endless scenarios where it's like 
But what if they did? And when you combine those two things, identifying assumptions so you can undermine them and then having that sort of malicious viewpoint, when you combine those, that is really how someone ultimately starts thinking like a hacker. And then there's, of course, there's a whole process for how you might go about it. But that's where you start. So, so you gave a great example there of, you know, you, you pick up an assumption and you say, well, what happens if this is going to happen? Or, you know, I definitely know this is going to break if this is going to happen. And, you know, the team lead or the PM, whoever it is you're speaking to, they say, nobody's going to think to do that. Let's move along because they don't want to spend, you know, two weeks development time fixing this issue. Right. So that was a common one. What would be like the next in line from, I guess, like from a development standpoint, and, and I'll give you an example from from my point of view. So there will be situations. So for example, I'm building an app, it has login screen. The only way to get into the app, the assumption is, is through the login screen. So nobody bothers, you know, checking anywhere else in the app. Are you logged in? Because the assumption is, if you're on this screen, you are logged in, right? So somebody could take the app, decompile the app, and then just change the root entry to the app to pass the login screen and they're in, right? And and I would hear PM say, nobody's going to think to do that. Let's not worry about this. Move on, right? So what would be um, another example of something like that that you see more commonly or something that as a developer is really easy to avoid, but people don't do it? Hmm. Well, that example you mentioned, I really, really like that example because that does happen all the time. Uh, and I know you're, you're talking about mobile apps, but you know, uh, web apps too, like URL tampering is, is a big thing where people just manipulate the <laughs> what's up in the URL and all of a sudden they bypass the, yeah, uh, you just change a query parameter or something. Like I don't know hacking and even I know there's things you could play with and probably break stuff. So yeah. So some of the other things are, uh, well, I'll, t- I'll tell you a really interesting story about an example of where, these things that people didn't necessarily think about how you might be able to combine them. So there was this system that we were performing a security assessment on. That's our, uh, you mentioned before, I have this, this company, Independent Security Evaluators, ISE. And so, you know, companies hire us to help them find their vulnerabilities and fix them. And as a result of one of those projects, we, we found a couple of issues. The first issue we found is called information leakage. What information leakage is when a system gives up information that it, it shouldn't. It's not directly exploitable, but it's not ideal. You don't, we really don't want it to happen. And in this case, it meant that any user of the system could obtain the user identifier of every other user in the system. Not really a good thing. Definitely something we advise against, but on its own, it's not really catastrophic. We found a second issue, a much more significant problem that was where the authorization model was broken. And broken authorization essentially means that the way that the system verifies permissions doesn't work correctly. And in this case, what that meant was that if someone wanted to change their credentials, they didn't change them in the normal way that uh, a system might, you know, today. Most systems are sort of common accepted practice that if you want to change your credentials, you got to enter the existing credential and then the new credential twice. That's the way most systems work. In this case, to change the credential, all you had to do, you didn't have to supply the existing credential, the existing password. You did have to supply something, though. You had to supply the user identifier. Now, in theory, you only know your own user identifier. So not that big of a deal, right? But when you combine these two, the information leakage means that the attacker can get every user identifier. And then because of the broken authorization, they can now change the credentials for every single user in the system, including the admin users, that means that an attacker could catastrophically take down the entire system, complete account takeover. And that is a really, uh, that particular scenario where you're sort of chaining these exploits together, those are the kinds of things that we see are both the most important issues are where you're combining things, but are also the kinds of things that most companies don't even think to look for. Because most people think that security testing is something that is automated. They think you just, you run it, you hit a button that runs a tool and then the tool spits you out a report and then you do some stuff based on the report. But those tools can't do stuff like this. Tools can't connect dots yeah. in that I way. I mean, they can only look for what they can look for, right? That's that's why you need people. Otherwise, if the exactly. tool could find everything, then nothing would ever break. Yeah, I mean, that would be an amazing future if that <laughs> was ever possible, but I just can't imagine at least not in our lifetimes. Nah, I mean, there will be maybe like when AI starts writing code, but the day that AI, AI starts writing code and it has bugs in it, then you know we're all doomed. So yeah, yep. that's the end of the story. <laughs> so there's also something else that I wanted to find out what, what, what that was, which was um, functionality abuse. So I'm super interested in what is that? Yeah, so I 
what I, the story I just described is this technique called uh, exploit chaining, and functionality abuse is another technique that is really, really important part of the process of finding vulnerabilities. And what uh, it means to abuse functionality is to take the way that a system is already built, take its existing feature set, and use those features in an attack against itself, uh, in an attack against the system. So there's a, uh, a really interesting analog metaphor for this that I saw the other day. I saw this video of this guy in Los Angeles. Uh, I can't remember one of the beach towns. I can't remember which one, but somewhere where parking was like really hard. And he's standing at these parking meters. And as people, you know, pull in, they're going to, of course, put money into the parking meter. And we all know how a parking meter works, right? You put a coin in the meter and the meter registers, hey, this is a, you know, whatever denomination. This is a quarter. I know I've now recognized that you've put in a quarter. You get 12 minutes of parking or, you know, whatever the thing is. Doesn't those units of measure don't matter, but you put in a coin, you get an amount of time. So that's the functionality. The functionality is ingest currency and in exchange, give you access for a period of time. And so this guy, <laughs> what he had done is he'd taken one of those little green plastic stirs that you get at somewhere like Starbucks or a coffee shop that, you know, you, you stir your whatever, your sugar in, and he had taped a coin to it. So as people would pull in, he'd like smile at them and be like, I'm going to pay your parking today. And he'd, he'd slide it in. It would register. You got 12 minutes. He'd pull it back out and he'd do it again and again and again oh, until wow, the thing okay. maxed out. And that wasn't the way that the meter is supposed to work, but that's an example where you abuse the functionality. The functionality expected a coin to go in and never to come back out again. And he said, well, how do I, can I abuse that? And that's a, that's a really great example of that. And if we wanted to apply that to a, uh, a real world example, um, you know, we talked about coins before. Uh, there's a cool example of abusing functionality that comes from online gaming where there's this really famous hacker who goes by the pseudonym of Manfred. And what Manfred would do, he made like, I mean, we're talking for decades, he was doing this to these games. He would abuse their in-game currency. And it, it sounds like definitely you and probably a lot of your audience understand the concept. So I won't go into, into depth, but for anyone, just to make sure I don't lose anyone. Basically the idea is you can accumulate or buy currency in the game and then you can use that currency for upgrades or, you know, a skills upgrade or weapons upgrade or access to something. And then they have these, you facilitate a transaction within the game. And the way that it worked, and I'm oversimplifying here, but it was, it would take your existing balance in your account and you'd subtract the amount that you needed in order to get the whatever the weapons upgrade and the result by subtracting those two is your revised balance so for example you might have 500 coins you minus 100 coins which is a positive number you're subtracting a positive number 500 minus 100 equals 400 and so what Manfred was looking at was he said, well, he, he pulled out sort of the, one of the most powerful tools in the hacker toolkit, which is the what if question. In this case, the what if question was, well, what if I figure out a way to use negative integers? And sure enough, he found out a way that he could manipulate the system. So it would actually accept negative integers. And so now it would say 500 coins minus negative 100 coins. And of course, as we all learned in middle school, when you subtract a negative, it's actually addition. And so he winds up with, instead of 400 coins, he winds up with 600 coins and gets whatever the upgrade was. And so that's a great example of where he was abusing the functionality. The functionality was take a number, subtract another number. And the assumption based into it was that number would be positive. And by abusing that functionality, he was able to accumulate this. I mean, it's absurd. I think he said at the height, it was almost 400 trillion US oh, dollars ridiculous. worth yeah. of that currency in, in US dollars. Like that would be the, the secondary market value of what he had accumulated. Obviously, there wasn't buyers for 400 trillion dollars worth of this stuff. But the point is, that's what he was able to accumulate. And of course, he wasn't supposed to be able to do that. And that's what abusing functionality is, is saying, okay, the system works in a certain way. Can I take that exact intended function, but make it do something different? And as we discussed with chaining exploits, there's no tool for something like this, right? You need a manual, a human looking at things manually to be able to say, hey, can I can I make it do something different? Yeah, I mean, it seems like assumptions play a big role in if you can figure out what your assumptions are, you can protect yourself or your code much better. Because I can imagine at least the, the one thing that I remember from computer science when we used to build like super basic websites, because that's as far as I got with web. 
was that you can't ever expect if, if it comes from a user you have to like sanitize the hell out of it and assume that it's always malicious like everything yeah. else was an assumption like oh if you press this button this will probably happen but anything where there was like an input field or the user could choose to do something was always like if they're going to upload an image you have to assume they're going to upload a pdf file and then what do you do yeah so i, I have a question which i still i haven't really got to the bottom of right so i spoke to a couple of like cybersecurity experts and that and i spoke to one who does mobile and I spoke to one who hasn't, and I still haven't got to the bottom of this. So I'm going to ask you, because it said on your website that when the original iPhone came out, you guys were really excited to see, essentially, if you could break it, right? You guys are hackers. This is what you do. And and you did. And so my question is, in 2021, as we're recording this right now, at a kind of, I guess, at a device level, because one of the questions I had for you was, what do we as, mostly as tech people, right? Because I feel like layman people, I'm not sure if that's the right term or not, but they take more things for granted than we do, right? They take for granted that, oh, I open this PDF by accident, it's not a problem. But a tech person would hopefully be like, well, that could be a problem because you don't know what that was. But the thing that I haven't got to the bottom is, is how secure or not in 2021 are mobile devices? Because I feel like that's something we definitely take for granted, right? Like everything is on my phone right now. And I'm just under the assumption that it's a mobile device in the same way that, you know, in 1996, Mac users were pretty safe because Windows was the big thing. So people are not trying to hack Mac and that's not the case anymore. So what would you say in terms of how secure a mobile device is? And, and as a secondary point to that, what would you say that tech people probably take for granted in terms of security that they shouldn't? Yeah, those are two really good questions. So maybe let me answer them uh, separately. So the first question is, uh, how secure are mobile devices? Well, certainly today in the year 2021, as compared to the year 2007, you know, when the iPhone came out, they're, they're light years ahead of where they were a long time ago. And, and, you know, that's a lot of credit goes to the whole ecosystem and community of people who have been working in, you know, mobile. Uh, so that's not just Apple and Google, but also all the uh, developers of all of these mobile apps and everything. There's been really a lot of progress. So nothing is ever fully secure. There's no such thing as like unhackable. Uh, that's actually why I titled my book Hackable, because I'm like, what's the opposite of unhackable? <laughs> that's why the book's called that. So one of the really strong advantages that mobile devices have, of course, is uh, at least in the iOS world, is the sandboxing. And sandboxing basically help, ensures that, you know, if, when one app gets popped, all the other apps won't get popped. Um, unless the phone's jailbroken, in which case, you know, havoc can ensue. But then I feel like that's on you, right? Like you might not understand the risk, mm -hmm. but the risk is that that's why it doesn't come jailbroken. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. There's a, the way that Apple and Google, the way that they sort of police and monitor their own respective app stores, like having that level of scrutiny over these things is that's, that's a great advantage. So there's not like a, I can't put a number. I can't quantify how secure a mobile device is, but I can, maybe I can answer it like this as a security professional myself. I am willing to accept the risk that comes with using my mobile phone, but I ensure that I'm using all available security resources. So this is beyond mobile, but anywhere that MFA, uh, multi-factor authentication is available, make sure to turn that on. Uh, I'm a big fan of using things like Face ID because even though uh, there's an argument that says like, hey, are we really wanting to give all the facial recognition software and our biometrics to these companies? Like, yeah, I definitely societally and from like almost black mirror perspective, I, I have concerns about that too. But what things like that do is they make people who are less paranoid than someone like me be more willing to use a better security approach. Because when you, when you use face ID, it can be set up to make sure that you don't have to also type in your second factor because of just because of the way that, you know, those, those things um, all work and multi-factor authentication is incredibly impactful in reducing the likelihood of a, a security event. So I think the short answer is I would feel confident using a mobile device as long as you're following, I hate the word, the term best practices, but you're following best practice, right? Like don't click malicious links. Don't download attachments you don't know. Don't connect to um, sketchy Wi-Fi. I mean, you know, all, all things like that. Use your, uh, make sure that you're having passwords and stuff on your phones. Don't jailbreak your phone unless there's like a mission critical, like we jailbreak phones as part of security research. Yeah, we need to know what happens. Yeah. But most people don't need to jailbreak their phones. They just want to jailbreak their phones. You know, stuff like that. 
Okay, so the second part to that question is just before we get to the second part, though, um, you mentioned Face ID and you have your own concerns. So I have my own concerns about, you know, especially these apps that come out where they're like Face Morph or like there's a reason why these apps are free. And in my head, it's like, well, they're doing something with that data. I'm not entirely sure why I should be afraid, but I'm, I'm, I'm super skeptical, right? But you as a security researcher, what would your concerns be with something like face ID or biometrics in terms of like that black mirror scenario? So the, the way to think about that is what are you willing to accept? So I am willing to accept giving that information to a large enterprise, someone like Apple, if it makes my experience better and it levels my security up. So those are worthwhile trade-offs to me. It's easier for me and more secure. And as a result, this company gets this information that, uh, you know, the sort of fatalist in me feels like they're going to get it somehow eventually someday anyway. So I'm like, well, why don't I just make my own life easier? So I'm willing to accept that. I am definitely not willing to accept giving that information to some unknown small company, probably in another country, like a face morph type of app. In no way is that making my life, excuse me, any better or helping me. That's like a fun, goofy little thing, which fine, have fun if you want to have fun. But for me, I'm definitely not going to participate in you know something like that because the trade-off isn't worth it. And it's very obvious that if I'm not paying for it, they're using that, you know, facial Somehow, yeah. Uh, f- information. Yeah. In some way that I don't, I don't want. Okay. All right. Cool. I'm, I'm just checking. There wasn't something that you knew that I didn't because I'm of the same opinion. I'm just not entirely sure why I'm of the same opinion apart from I'm just super skeptical about everything. So yeah. Well, that's good. <laughs> okay. Good. Okay. Good. So the second part of that original question was, what would you say as, as like quote unquote tech people or developers or, or however you want to term it that we take for granted that we really shouldn't? Sometimes I think of tech people as exhibiting similar behaviors to like doctors in that we don't take our own advice sometimes. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I don't know how many friends you might have that are doctors, but I have a lot of friends who are doctors and it's so funny to see doctors smoke, smoke cigarettes (laughs) or chew nicotine. And you're like, you of all people know how bad this is. Like, what are you doing? And so I I think that tech people, we sort of take for granted uh, some of the the way we should think about access controls. I think tech people are ultimately people, right? And uh, people don't like friction. And so when security causes uh, any particular, you know, type of friction that makes our lives harder, we kind of resist it. But I am happy to say that I think, you know, when I look across my friends that are security professionals, as compared to more broadly, anyone who's not security professionals, they definitely do it better than anyone else. Um, but maybe not you, maybe not a hundred percent uniformity with everything that we preach. So that's one of the things where we're all, I think, amongst ourselves, even saying like, okay, well, here's why we might use a password manager because it may, it reduces friction on passwords. Okay. Here's how we use a password manager while reducing the likelihood of a, you know, breach of that manager, you know, those kinds of things. So I guess it goes back to what you said earlier. It's like the trade off and what are you willing to accept? And I guess you guys are more informed to know what you're willing to accept and what you're trading out for. I want to talk about the book because there's going to be people listening. So the first question I have before we dig into, to the book a little bit is, the book, if I'm, if I'm a developer or I'm a coder or maybe I'm not, right? Maybe I'm just listening and I'm super interested in tech, but I don't know anything about code. If I pick up this book, is this a good in to learn more about cybersecurity and, and hacking and ethical hacking and all that stuff? Absolutely. Yeah, it is. So when I think about it, you know, I wrote this book for essentially three different uh, types of audiences who all share common problems, but experience the problems differently. So it was, you know, technology leaders like your CTOs, VP of engineering, et cetera, uh, your developers and security professionals. And all three of those parties, they all are interlinked on the same problems, but their view on those problems is slightly different. So as I was writing the book, I was ma- I was thinking of sort of all three of those. But when I was thinking about how to communicate the ideas, the the goal was to make it so that everyone from experienced, like they've been doing this for decades to they are in a degree program right now, just learning it. I wanted to make it accessible to all of them. And when I first was talking about that, there were people who were like, but can you, like, can you write a book that's as useful to someone who's new as someone who's experienced? And that was a good question. And the answer to that is yes. Because, so the book is not like a technical deep dive. It's not, here's how you run Nessus. You go to this page, you click this button. Like, there's none of that. It's more of concepts, identifying misconceptions and giving you advice on what you should do instead. So it'll be things like, you know, most people think 
this. Here's why that's wrong. Here's the three reasons that's wrong. Here's the data that supports why that's wrong. Here's what to replace that thinking with instead. And here's the three things that you should do in order to make sure that you get this idea correct. And if you describe things in a very simple way like that, which is actually extraordinarily difficult to do, it's really hard to take a super complex, highly technical, scientific topic and describe it in a way that a, what I was trying to do, I was trying to describe it in a way that a 12 year old kid could understand. And if you can do that, then it doesn't matter how experienced or inexperienced they are. Because think about anything that you're a master at, right? So you're a master at something. And when you're reading about that something, does your degree of mastery matter if you want it to be easy to understand what you're reading about? Like, no, you want the thing to be easy to understand. Even if it's about an advanced concept, you still want it to be something that you can say, okay, now I get it. Now I can apply it and now I can behave differently. So that's a really long way of answering your question because even though I set out originally thinking like, all right, CTOs, that's sort of the core audience. I want a CTO to be able to answer, to know what to do. And then as the book actually was written and came out, it's really been amazing to me that because I simplified things so effectively, or I shouldn't speak on myself there because I strove to simplify things. So many people have come to me saying, hey, I'm just getting into security and I read your book and I now understand all these domains. And even though I wrote the book about application security, you know, specifically talking about like, how do we think about software? The principles are applicable to everything, but I didn't want to write a general interest security book because I felt like that wouldn't be appealing to anybody if it was like, these are all the security ideas. Like, no, let's focus on this one area and then we can extract from that if we want. I gotcha. That makes sense. So a couple of questions on that. One, how did you find the book writing process? life-changing did you okay yeah in what way yeah i think writing a book will change your life it did for me i guess i shouldn't say for everybody but every single one of my author buddies who i went through a similar experience with through a similar uh, period of time all of their lives uh, they would say the same thing that you know changes your life and it's hard make no doubt about it like i'm i made that sound very glorious and awesome and it was those things but it was it was hard I'm a busy person, like every single person listening to this show. We're all busy. You know, we all have, from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed, there's something we have to do and we're doing something. So it's like, well, where are you going to fit in writing a book? So in order to do that, I, I actively and intentionally had to change habits. So I started getting up. I already was someone who got up on the earlier side anyway. You know, I get up around like 6, 6.30 maybe in the morning. But now I started getting up at 4.45 every morning without exception. And it was the first thing I did every day was work on my book because no matter what happened during the day, I wanted to make sure no matter what like proverbial fires were to come up, I wanted nothing to get in the way of this is the one thing I needed to make sure I got done every day. And it helped me because, you know, so I had to change habits. So it was, it was, it was hard. But once I did that, now, of course, I have these great new habits. And the process really forced me to think differently and to understand the ideas differently. And you know, it's kind of crazy. You like you outline the book in what, like 45 minutes. And then you take a year and a half to take what you wrote in those first 45 minutes and actually articulate it succinctly. And that is a really powerful process. And of course, now I was able to identify all these stories. So when I talk to you know people like you and say, tell me about a story about this, I'm like, all right, here's one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah awesome. That's cool. Um, the other question I wanted to ask is, I, I think like the term is the curse of knowledge. I'm not sure if that's totally accurate, but how hard did you find it going from as experienced that you are to trying to write a book or successfully writing a book that somebody that is just getting into things could understand? Like how hard was it to get back to that mindset of, I don't know anything. What are the things that I need to know? Cause like generally speaking, if you ask me about Android development, I forget the things that I just take, like I know them. I just do this thing. Like, why do you do this thing? I don't know. This is just what you do. But for people that are starting, you can't just say to them, do this thing. It's just what you do. So how hard did you find it to kind of get back into that mindset and, and try and like remember the things that you know that you don't even realize that you know because you just do them? That was very, very hard. And we all as human beings, as we uh, pursue mastery and ultimately achieve mastery in any particular domain, we, we, we sort of speak it wherever we are in that process to mastery. And for me, it was, it was a process certainly to sort of be able to take myself out of that. And that, but that was also a liberating and freeing process because I would imagine that, I would imagine that many of your listeners probably feel like the thing that they're experts at probably isn't even special enough because they see all these other people who are better than them at it. But what, and, and that's, 
that's a true like valid way of thinking that a lot of people have but here's why it's wrong and and i only noticed i was only able to recognize that it's wrong because i was in the process of writing this book you realize like okay i might be in the like tippy point of the spear of this one idea and maybe there's a couple other people who are ahead of me at the tippy point of the spear but you know what most of the people who are interested in this idea they're at like the back end of the handle of the spear they don't even know that there's like an arrowhead at the head of the spear. They just see a piece of wood in front of them. And so once you start to break out of that mold and you realize, oh, okay, well, I guess here's, okay, here's how I'd simplify these ideas. And the practical way that I did that, because that sounds nice in theory. Okay, Ted, like, okay, I get it. You want to simplify things. Got it. But how? Well, the way how is exactly what I mentioned before, which was imagine that you're describing this to a curious kid. And I was in the fortunate position that at that exact time, my nephew was the exact age of the person that I wanted to be, you know, so I could literally actually talk to him about the the ideas. And I'd be like, here's what buffer overflow is. And you realize it, it helps you not only simplify the ideas, but it helps you get rid of all the corporate jargon and all the BS that gets in the way. You know, like <laughs> in the process of writing the book, there was this kind of funny thing that happened where someone said, I can't remember if it was talk or I think it was a panel I was on and not a podcast, but someone asked this question, and they're like, they're like, Ted, as we think about digital transformation and the emergence of new technologies and how artificial intelligence will change the way that stakeholders evaluate the go-to-market strategies. And like halfway through, I was like, wow, okay, that, that's just buzzword bingo. And really what this guy was asking was he says, how do we deal with change, right? That's really what he was asking. As the world changes, how do we deal with it? And we all get so wrapped up in this like corporate speak that we lose sight of speaking simply. But when I think about how do I describe this to my nephew, if I said the word stakeholder to my nephew, he'd be like, what? What's a stakeholder? Okay, so I should probably pull that word out. And all of a sudden you keep pulling words out, pulling words out, simplifying to find when, when you have to use that word, you define it. And then you can get to the simplicity of how do we deal with change? A 12 year old can understand that question. And if a 12 year old can understand that question, so too can the person even who's at a level of mastery and they're going to be able to say like, yeah, obviously. And that's ultimately how I was able to do it. Okay. That's, that's a great answer. And yeah, that's a super long, long winded question that somebody asked you to ask you the simplest answer. So <laughs> good job getting to the yeah. question they were actually asking. <laughs> so last question from me, which is what is the coolest hack that you've either done or that you've heard about that you want to share with the audience. I should caveat, cool is in your opinion. It doesn't have to be like what made headlines, whatever you think is cool. Well, I think a lot of the ones I already mentioned are cool, but there's one story that is kind of, I think it's just a wild story. And so I'll leave, I'll leave you with this story. This is actually the story I opened my book with because I'm like, you got like, this just catches attention. So we were doing some research a few years ago, looking at, we were interested in cryptocurrency. And so we were looking at Ethereum wallets. And there is this concept in cryptography that's called statistical improbability. And statistical improbability is essentially what protects a cryptocurrency wallet. And it basically means that, you know, a key can't be predicted. And the way to think about statistical improbability is like, let's say you go to the beach, you pick up a grain of sand, you throw the grain of sand back. I go back to the same beach the next day. What's the likelihood that when I go pick up a grain of sand, I pick up your exact same grain of sand? Pretty much impossible. Then you multiply that by like every beach on earth and multiply that by like a gazillion earths. And that gives you a sense. It's just, it's not impossible. I mean, there's a chance it could happen, but it's, it's pretty much impossible. And so that's, that's what statistical improbability is. It says that an attack, that nobody, not even an attacker, that nobody could guess the private key that keeps a cryptocurrency wallet secure. But we did. In the course of our research, we actually discovered that we could predict correctly the key of these Ethereum wallets, um, we did it correctly 732 times. Now, that's like picking up your same grain of sand 732 times. It shouldn't be able to happen once. And we proved you could do it a ton of times. And so the logical next question, of course, is, well, all right, so now you have these 732 vulnerable wallets. Uh, how much money are we talking about here? And because, you know, Ethereum's built, of course, on a blockchain, you can see the transaction. So we're able to actually count the money. And it was a pretty substantial amount. At the time, the coins were valued at a little over 54 million US dollars. 
So, and it's worth way more today because Ethereum's way, way up from that, the time of the research. And uh, I think it's like 10 times the value today. So instead of 54 it's million, like it's like a billion. half a billion yeah. dollars. And think about what that means, right? If it's weak keys are what's protecting these wallets, it's kind of like a pile of cash just sitting on the sidewalk. Someone's going to steal it eventually. And someone did. <laughs> That's the, the next thing we discovered is that every single coin, every single unit of currency was exfiltrated out of those vulnerable wallets and all funneled to a single destination wallet. Like clearly someone had stumbled upon the same vulnerability that our research had found and was exploiting it. And the, the final detail to, sh to share about that was we want to see, okay, well, how fast do these things get looted? So, and there's, there's like, we couldn't go contact somebody and say, Hey, can you put some? So we put a dollar's worth of our own money into one of these vulnerable wallets and almost instantly the money was gone. I mean, like snap your fingers and it's just whoosh, gone. And it's a really powerful story, not only because it's like crazy. I mean, we wound up naming that guy, the blockchain bandit. Uh, well, I say guy, I don't know if it was a guy or a gal or a group or what, but this individual or this attacker, we named the blockchain bandit, Wired wrote this whole big expose about it. And it's a really powerful story and, and a good way, I think, to close the show here because you don't have to close the show. But I'm saying if this is your last question, sure, this, sure, is a, sure. yeah, this go would be it, yeah. a good one to end on because it shows two things really powerfully. The first thing it shows is that these vul that vulnerabilities exist. And the second thing it shows is attackers exploit them. And that's why this matters. So anyone who s sort of lives in a hypothetical la-la land and says like, oh, okay, well, it's all, all these security people, of course, are the ones who say that, you know, security breaches are going to happen. No, this stuff happens. Attackers exploit it. That's why it matters to think about security, think like a hacker, and ultimately fix these vulnerabilities. Awesome. Awesome. That's an incredible story. And that is definitely a good way to close the show. So that was my last question. But before we leave, let people know where they can find you online. Where do you want to direct them to? Where can they get your book? All that good stuff. Yeah, the simplest thing would just be to go to tedharrington.com. If you want to find out more about my book, uh, you need to, you want to book me to speak at one of your events. You need help with security testing of your solution. You want to follow me on social media, like all that information is there. So that's the easiest. Just go to tedharrington.com. Whatever you need will be there. And, and I'm very, very responsive. So if you contact me through the contact form or hit me up on social media, like let me help you. So however I can, I want to be a resource. Big thanks to today's guest, Ted Harrington. You can find him on LinkedIn, on his website, tedharrington.com, and you can find his book, Hackable, wherever you find books. Finally, if you like the show, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating or a review. You can do that either via Apple Podcasts or via podchaser.com. The link is in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so with a coffee donation at coffeeencodingpod.com slash donate. Caffeine is literally what fuels this podcast. If you'd like to connect with me, you can do so on Twitter at lowcarbrob. And if you'd like to connect with like-minded developers and other listeners, you can do so in our Slack community at coffeeencodingpod.com slash Slack. Thank you for listening, and I'll catch you on the next episode of the Coffee Encoding Podcast. <laughs>